Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. Um, and I have to share with you, I am particularly excited about our guest for today, um, James Kingsland, who has written uh, a monumental text, in my opinion, and I just can't wait to get into it with him and, and really start to unpack the implications of this remarkable tome. But the, the reason I came to know James and his book is um, his publisher reached out to me very graciously a couple of months ago to uh, consider endorsing it. And um, I said, sure, I'll give it a read. And very often when I get these sorts of requests, I start them with a little bit of skepticism. But within just a few pages, I realized, wow, this is a special book. Um, and so that's how uh, James and I met, so to speak. Um, I met through his mind. Uh, reading this remarkable book, um, had a very easy time endorsing it. I'll share my endorsement in just a second. So what I want to do, of course, is start with a brief bio about who James is um, and then start to launch into what I believe will be a, a really rewarding time because the scope of this text is so vast that uh, if any problem we'll have, it'll be one of just reining it in and um, keeping it in under six hours, so to speak. So anyway, so here's here's James. So James is a science journalist with more than 25 years experience working for publications, including New Scientist, Nature, and The Guardian. He began his career as a sub-editor, but over the years has focused more and more on his own writing, including features for New Scientists on topics, including whether antidepressants work and why we age, as well as articles for The Guardian on subjects ranging from the Dalai Lama to ayahuasca. In 2016, he published his first book, Siddhartha's Brain, about the science of meditation and enlightenment. And in August of this year, 2019, his second book comes out called Am I Dreaming? The New Science of Consciousness and How Altered States Reboot the Brain. He's a practicing Buddhist, which parenthetically, James, I did not know that until I read your bio, so I definitely want to talk to you about how that came about. He meditates daily and over the past few years has been exploring other ways of cultivating a healthy mind, including psychedelic drugs, hypnotism, and lucid dreaming. And so here's my riff, um, the endorsement that I sent. Rigorously researched, elegantly crafted, and personally inspired, this is a wonderful contribution to the burgeoning field of neurophenomenology, where science meets spirit. Every page delivers an insight. This book is not for the faint of heart, but for intrepid, intrepid explorers of consciousness who are willing to make the shattering discovery that reality is not what you think it is, yet it's ironically what you think into existence. Probing altered states helps us wake up to the natural state and to realize that it is all but a dream within a dream. And James, I, I just added this, I'm gonna send it to your publisher to see if we can still tuck this last little line. But um, this last little line is the following. If you are not shocked by this book, you don't understand it, um, end quote. And so it's, it's a shocking book in, in the best sense of that word. And, and to me, when I read it, it reminded me of the stories of when the historical Buddha was giving his first teachings on emptiness. And I'm sure you know this, James, you know, 500 of his most senior students had heart attacks. And um, I think they did so because the teachings on emptiness pulled the rug out from uh, under the reality that they felt they were standing on. And in the same way, that's what this book delivers is the 
kind of shocking truth that reality is in fact not what you think it is. Um, and that's no small thing. And so I want to start, if it's okay, with what inspired you to write this book? What, what was the seed that um, sparked this uh, remarkable journey for you? Okay, well, thanks very much for those kind words. And um, by the way, I think it's terrific that you've set up nightclub and at night school. Um, such a good idea, because I remember when I was a kid, uh, my brother, sister and I, we used to come down in the morning to breakfast and uh, we'd be bursting to uh, to tell our parents about all these wonderful, wacky dreams we'd had. Yeah. And um, my parents would uh, roll their eyes as if to say, oh, no, not again, not this nonsense all over again. And uh, so after a while, we stopped um, talking about our dreams. And I think that's just such a shame. It's uh, one third of our lifetimes and um, uh, such a, a rich source of uh, inspiration and possible learning. And I think it's wonderful that you created a forum where people can come together and share their dreams and learn how to make the most of them. So yeah. you know, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, again, thank you for those kind words. And, and um, as, as you will see, if you Stay with us as a member of my club um, in our next podcast, or I should say webinar, we're going to be talking, in fact, exactly about that, this kind of dismissive relationship that the Western world has to these so-called altered states, you know, that we, we are essentially a monophasic culture where we have this extraordinary um, kind of unconscious bias towards wake centricity, you know, the only way we can know mind and reality is through the waking state, and, and I would argue um, that, in fact, if we don't honor the arenas of mind through sleeping and dreaming states, we're, we're leaving um, essentially two-thirds of reality out. I mean, not, not temporarily, but categorically, that uh, we're losing the ability to relate to mind and reality in these extremely subtle dimensions. And, and this is exactly what your book talks about. So let's get into it. So, so again, tell us how, what sparked you to write this? Um, okay. Yeah, so your uh, little uh, bio has, has brought me up to working at the Guardian newspaper. This was in my late 40s, and I was already doing some meditation daily, but I was starting to experience what some people might call a midlife crisis. Um, perhaps the meditation gave me an insight into the kind of person I was becoming, though it wasn't helping perhaps as much as it should have because uh, with the passing years, I felt I was becoming an increasingly angry, judgmental and intolerant kind of person. And um, it doesn't give me any pleasure to, to admit that, uh, but um, probably on the outside, no one noticed any change, uh, but I certainly noticed. And I didn't like what I saw very much. I didn't like myself very much. So to give you a flavor, um, I used to cycle to work every day from North London to King's Cross, which took me over the famous zebra crossing on Abbey Road, uh, made famous by the Beatles. And uh, every morning without fail, there would be hordes of tourists on the pavement waiting to have their turn, to have their picture taken, frozen in mid-stride on the crossing. And uh, of course, they used to hold up the traffic. And this used to drive me nuts, especially if I was late for work. And uh, these young people would 
selfishly hold up the traffic for 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 quite a while and and be be oblivious to what they were doing. So anyway, I I, I would get really angry about this. And one morning, I didn't stop. I just kept on cycling and spread straight across the crossing, narrowly missing, hitting someone and injuring them. Um, so yeah, we could we could laugh now, but it, it could have been quite nasty. So that was really sobering, and um, I didn't like this angry, judgmental, middle-aged man I'd become. And I decided I wanted to do something about it, uh, which is I, how I came to try lucid dreaming to complement my meditation practice, and later psychedelics in the in the Netherlands and also in Peru. Um, I'd read I'd read research suggesting that psychedelics can boost mindfulness, openness to experience and acceptance. And uh, um, I decided I was going to give it a go uh, because, I mean, according to the research, uh, after, for example, after drinking ayahuasca, your levels of mindfulness could be boosted uh, to those seen in somebody who's been meditating for seven years or so, uh, probably only temporarily. But nonetheless, this was exciting. So um, I went went on to try all sorts of things, uh, but I only tried things that were backed by sound science. But nonetheless, it was quite a ride. And I have to say, I'm still a, a student of these experiences. Uh, I haven't got a lot. I st- I've still got a lot to learn. But so the book is principally about the science r- rather than the practice. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And so um I want to, you know, one of the challenges for me is like, oh my gosh, like, where do we start? Because they're literally every page of this book delivers a, a, a wallop. And so there's so many wallops to unpack. But but let, let me just start um, by sharing with our readers something that you so generously shared with me. Um, because I often uh, send to my guests, you know, is there something in particular that you want to discuss? And, and what you sent here, James, I thought was incredibly articulate and completely confluent with what we're doing with our charter with the night club and night school so let me start with this um and because it's so beautifully written i will simply just reread it to our audience and then from there we'll just spontaneously take it wherever it takes us but this is what james suggested and i think it's a fantastic starting point so um the unique selling point of this book is probably the new science of consciousness which sees all experience perceptions thoughts emotions etc as a delicate balancing act between raw sensory evidence and our beliefs or expectations about the world. It may come as a surprise to many of us, for example, that expectation plays a leading role in much of what we see and hear. Seen in this light, it becomes clear why our brains are so good at conjuring virtual reality scenarios in our dreams. Because even though we don't realize it, the brain is doing this continually while we're awake. Dreams are just ordinary brain function unplugged from bottom-up sensory evidence on the one hand and top-down reality checking, paren, metacognition or secondary consciousness and paren, on the other. This leads quite nicely into lucid dreaming when our reality checking faculties come back online. And so, wow, let's unpack this. This is so rich. And, And to me, it was one of the many take-home messages I derive from your book, this kind of challenge of our usual um, uncontested view that most of what we perceive in the world is is represented from our sensory faculties, you know, this kind of upward direction of sensory flow to the brain. And yet you, you so elegantly contest that by saying, well, 
not quite so that you know a large part of what dictates our perception of reality is deeply colored influence by um, top-down uh, machinations and so let's let's unpack this for our listeners a little bit James because I, I agree with you completely that in many ways this is the the heart essence of this book and how and how it ties in as you suggest here to uh, to lucid dreaming so help us understand this yeah sure because um this stuff came as a shock to me too i have to say because um we're all familiar with with optical illusions for example there's the uh, famous illusion where you have a picture and you can either see it as two faces profile of two faces uh facing each other or you can see it as the space between those faces namely as a vase and your brain will vacillate between the two interpretations first you see the faces then you see the vase and you can kind of choose which you see depending on what you concentrate on and what you expect and we're all very familiar with that kind of illusion um but um i think we we dismiss it as a kind of curiosity a one-off curiosity but in fact this this stuff is going on all the time in the background of our thinking uh, because what it shows is that fundamentally our percep perception is driven by by expectation by by top-down processing and this applies also to to hearing to smell to touch um, and to to cognition in general so I mean I had another shock I came across a um, um, an audio illusion, a hearing illusion on uh, Twitter. Someone shared a post of a video of a dinky little toy uh, nice. from the, from the uh, 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 Ben 10 children's animated TV series. And um, it's a little figurine showing the character from the series called, um, uh, let me think, <laughs> called, uh, I've forgotten the name now. Oh, no worries. Anyway, let, hang on. Let me let me find out the name. That link, by the way, while you're doing that, is something that I will post for our, our viewers because you you um, give a link to this thing, and it's uh, it, it's it's kind of spooky, actually. Um, it's very spooky, yeah. And the character name is Brainstorm. Yeah. Um, and what happens is uh, if you press the button of this toy, uh, the sound comes out, it flashes and the sound comes out saying brainstorm. And if that's what you're expecting to hear, that's what you will hear. But if you think green needle, just before the button is pressed, you hear green needle. It's as if the, the toy is reading your mind, um, which I found remarkable. So. You know, you can you can switch from one to the other, just like the uh, the vase illusion. You can you can decide what you're going to hear, and it comes out quite clearly, either brainstorm or green needle, depending on what you're already thinking, depending what you're expecting to hear. So um, it's another powerful demonstration, and and this goes on all the time, even as we're speaking, as we're listening to language. The brain is kind of uh, it's predicting. Uh, what it wants to hear. It's, it's for example, in a sentence, uh, the brain will chop up the words. It'll make gaps between the sentence 
But if you create a sonogram of the noise uh, of that sentence, it'll just be it'll be a blur. You know, it'll you you'd be very hard pressed to see where one word ends and the next begins. But because we're uh, we're uh, encultured by by our language, we're programmed by our language. We what we do is we impose structure on what we're hearing, um, and 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 that's how we we interpret what what is being said. There's a lot of processing goes on, a lot of expectation and prediction that goes on quite uh, beneath the radar of our conscious awareness. Exactly. Yeah, and what I think what what is so disconcerting about this, as you reference in your um, book, James, is how not only is it um, so deeply unconscious, but I would also interject the the absolute lightning rapidity, the speed with which this takes place. And and I mean, just to give one very brief example, I mean, you're listening to my voice right now, and almost instantaneously, you're deriving meaning out of these compression and rare fraction sound waves that are impinging upon your ear when when, when fundamentally that's that's a secondary process it's just that's taking place um, on top of the perceptual um, data so to speak and so I, I think when people start to realize how unbelievably quickly this takes place and how subversively it takes place then you start to realize why the Buddha is sometimes referred to as the awakened one and by contradistinction of course that means the rest of us are asleep. And, and this is one of the reasons I became so interested in, in the Buddhist tradition altogether, because I was immediately intrigued by, you know, the very etymology of his name, you know, the awakened one. And what does that really mean? And I think largely what it means is, is, in fact, bringing these unconscious processes into the light of conscious awareness so that then we can at least establish a relationship to them, because otherwise we're, we're prisoners of these processes. You know, we, we believe we exist in a dualistic um, reality when fundamentally that reality is is projected and imputed by these unconscious processes and then and so by bringing this together and putting it out in front with really sound scientific principles which is really the deep bow of gratitude I extend to you I mean you have done your homework in this book and the data that you collect in such a compelling way I think will will land with real impact in the Western world um, and so it, let, let's talk further about this because Again, just to come back to what I was saying at the outset, I think this book is shocking in so many ways, but one of the ways it's shocking is that it it really um, destroys representationalism. It really destroys this illusion that there is, in fact, a solid, lasting, independent reality out there that we somehow passively represent, you know, sometimes referred to literally as the camera theory of perception. You know, we run around just passively clicking and representing this world. And what you're saying is that, oh, MG, it is so far from that, that we are um, not, you know, passive victims of our reality. We are, um, in fact, magnificent co-creators, co and actors of this reality. And so um, I love this book so much because not only does it re bring forth this uh, really kind of tectonic earthquake cognitive earthquake about the way we relate to reality, but it's also, James, I think, highly empowering if, in fact, we grok what you're saying, that if we realize our role as magnificent co-creators, which, again, I'd love to tie this back into lucid dreams because that's what happens when the mind is free from sensory constraint. I, I left this book um, 
not only feeling shocked in the best sense, but also really empowered that I am not a victim of my reality. I, I have tremendous co-creative capacities to, to um, take control over my life and the way I relate to my work. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that, the death of representationalism and the role of um, the individual as magnificent co-creator. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. It, it is shocking to start with, but then uh, you start to realize that we do, it gives us uh, an in, mindfulness gives us an in, a way of uh, knowing what's happening to us simply by um, pointing our attention in particular directions, by, by deliberately, consciously, actively deciding where we're going to put our attention. We can uh, we can get to know what's what's happening to us, but otherwise, as, as you say, it all happens so rapidly. We just have have no idea that that it's happening at all. And uh, so, I mean, another example is is the placebo effect, mm. um, which uh, just uh, maybe ten years ago, people wouldn't have thought that the range of effects were were possible. The uh, not only psychological effects, but also physical effects on on your your gut, on your metabolism, on your cardiovascular system. Simply the the power of belief um, that uh, a pill or a procedure is going to work has such a strong effect. So much so that uh, when they create a new drug, uh, they usually they struggle to uh, to have it perform better than a than a sugar pill, than a placebo pill. Uh, so, so it, it it brings a lot of power as as well as uh, as well as being slightly shocking. Yeah, it's beautiful, and 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 as, and as we know, you know, I mean, the placebo effect, um, as well as its darker cousin, you know, the nocebo effect, how um, beliefs can um, damage. It's a slight misnomer, isn't it? Because it's really a mind effect. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. And and, and the other, I think, really compelling thing. This is where your beautiful chapter on uh, hypnosis comes into play. Um, and also what I'm really interested in, in this regard is, is the extraordinary um, power is this revealed through things like dissociative identity disorder or what used to be called multiple personality disorder. I mean, the data around that is really shocking about how within a matter of seconds, uh, an entire body um, Kind of matrix can be altered, you know, changing eye color, changing handedness, changing um, anti antibody titers and the like. Um, it, it's really quite dramatic what can take place there. And so, so how, when you started talking um, and exploring, um, well, let's just go with it with hypnosis because in many ways, when we're talking about waking up, a, a synonym for that I think it would be um, dehypnosis. You know, wake uh, becoming dehypnotized. Talk to us a little bit about what you write about so beautifully in the book, James, about the, the place of hypnosis and also deeply conjoined with that is what you talk about is um, reality is, is um, hallucination, um, kind of, you know, hypothesis and hallucination, because these are, these are all different angles to get at this central attack on representationalism, the fact that you know, we register reality in this kind of passive way. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, hypnosis um, demonstrates that you can change almost any 
conscious perception. Uh, simply by the power of suggestion, you can make someone believe that a black and white photograph is color or vice versa. You can make them believe they're possessed by the spirit of Elvis, uh, that they've, they've become a chimpanzee or that their, their arm is so heavy they can no longer lift it. And uh, providing you have a certain degree of suggestibility, you can implant these ideas in, into somebody's head. And uh, these people on in stage hypnotist shows, they're not playing along. They really, yes. they believe what's happening to them. They believe that their perception has been fundamentally altered. And and the explanation for this, which which emerges from, from this new uh, science of uh, consciousness, is that the, um, the brain is organized hierarchically with uh, predictions coming from the top, from the uh, from the core or, or the peak of the hierarchy, and in the opposite direction are, are prediction errors reported back by the senses. Mm. And um, what hypnotists do, and what what uh, charismatic politicians can do, and preachers, is kind of hijack the top floor of that hierarchy and start sending out their own predictions. Um, uh, about what we're experiencing and what is real and what is not, and at least temporarily, uh, they can they can suspend our reality checking faculties. And the way they do this is by having us focus our attention exclusively, for example, on their voice. And it kind of we're kind of uh, mesmerized, literally mesmerized, into. Uh, believing what they're saying and and uh, effectively what they've done is hijacked the executive level of that hierarchy of conscious processing and uh, it demonstrates once again the the power of expectation over everything we see hear, smell touch think and believe yes isn't it, it, it wouldn't it be fair to say James that that, that um, you know one, one of the things that that I talk about, with night um night club and night school is uh, you know kind of the code language and and how it is that many of these terms that we're using like darkness is a cold word for the unconscious mind and for ignorance lucidity is a cold word for awareness and so in this regard when you say that what i flash on is another way to use this using the code language of the nocturnal um, practices is that we fundamentally go non-lucid when we fall under the influence of politicians or hypnotists and the like. And to me, it's yet another iteration of this um, really disconcerting tendency that we have until we are stabilized in wakeful states of consciousness, where we surrender our intelligence, we surrender our awareness, our lucidity um, to these forces out external and um, internal. And, and for me, one of the things that really inspired me on in your book that I honestly wish you would have talked a little bit more about is that not only are these narratives um, from the external world so incredibly effective in uh, inducing, so to speak, non-lucidity within us, but these narratives are also part of the, I mean, you talk about it as the default mode network and the salience network, which I want to um, have you talk about later. But the idea is that we, we are constantly giving ourselves um, post-hypnotic suggestions, if you, if you will, that we're always depending on the narratives that we tell ourselves, which can be revealed in meditation, by the way, which is one reason I think meditation is such a powerful de-hypnotic agent, it really helps us to discover how it is that not only the external 
agents have this capacity to put us to sleep, to, to keep us hypnotized. But in fact, we're hypnotizing ourselves all the time by buying into these subconscious gossips, these narratives that underlie our so-called conscious awareness. I mean, do, is that one way that you could look at this? Absolutely. I mean, it's really quite, uh, it's quite scary the way uh, the mind goes looking for confirmations of its biases. I mean, we, we see it quite clearly, for example, on social media, on Twitter, where you follow people who who confirm your your prejudices about the world as not you know not a problem with a particular political uh, belief system. You know, it happens to all of us. We we seek out uh, information, data that will will confirm our biases. And in fact, um, interestingly, this is this is the basis of how the brain controls all kinds of actions. It it uh, it predicts the consequences of a particular action and um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, the, the muscles or the autonomic nervous system uh, fulfill that prediction. And that's kind of what, what we do to ourselves, as you say, it's almost like a self, self-hypnosis. self We go out there and we, we find the information which will, will confirm our biases. So we can carry on on this narrow, narrow track determined by our automatic uh, the automatic systems that are built up in our brain to uh, to cope with re- with reality but um, then again as, as you say uh, mindfulness it, it provides a way out it provides a way of stepping back just a little and, and watching it as it goes on and uh, and uh, uh, focusing our attention and rather than behaving automatically we we focus in on on our senses and we can we can weaken the power of of these expectations, these biases. Yes, isn't it? I mean, I, I the double entendre, you know, meditation quite literally um, uh, brings us to our senses um, in both senses of that word. That's right. To me, it's like, you know, what you were saying, James, about how we're looking for that and whatnot that confirms our biases. I mean, I argue that this is the fundamental essence of gossip. I mean, we gossip because we're uncertain about our reality and we want to find co-conspirators that will help us establish the veracity of our fundamental um, bullshit. <laughs> and That's so I, it, yeah. That we find it very reassuring to to confirm our biases, you know, that yeah. we, we we get a kind of uh, a little kick every time that happens. Yeah, it's probably, in fact, I, it would be interesting to see if there's a slight dopamine release every time that happens. I'm sure, I'm sure there is, yeah. yeah. You know, this little injection into the egoic network. And for me, just to reinstate, to tie this into... Um, lucid dreaming and what we do, I I have the strongest um, belief that we uh, fundamentally have, not only are we, we could say, unwitting victims of this kind of process of of non-lucidity, using my terms, but I would go farther and and say, James, that we actually have a lust for non-lucidity. We love to be captured. We we love to be what uh, neuroscientists talk about, um, swept up by the swept up continuum. And, and this, to me, I think is super important, not just only for how it is that we get lost in our dreams and they become non-lucid, how we get lost in the narratives of the subconscious mind and therefore spend our lives in the non-lucid state, but um, also how this takes place. Well, I'm, I mean, really, just that, that, that we have this propensity to just um, capitulate, to surrender to these narratives um, completely unbeknownst that we're actually doing that. And so... And, and so we disempower ourselves. We, we, we 
give our, our control and power over to, over to these processes. And this, to me, brings us very, I think, nicely back into um, what I think a lot of our listeners would get um, insight from, which is discussion on this very famous default mode network. So talk to us about that, because I think for both lucid dreamers and meditators, this is something they need to know to understand the neurological basis. And again, hence the term neurophenomenology. But neurophenomenology is for our listeners is basically um, kind of the dance or the juxtaposition of first person experience. That's the phenomenological part and, and the science that helps um, understand and articulate and even support that. That's the neural part. So James, talk to us a little bit of, um, first about the default mode network, um, how we can bringing that processing into the light of consciousness can help us relate to it more skillfully. And then also deeply conjoined with that, which I wasn't aware of until I read your book, the salience network. I thought those were two really seminal contributions of your work. Sure. Well, um, the default mode network is is classically known as the the mind wandering network because uh, when people lie in brain scanners and are told uh, just to not do anything in particular, they're not given a job to do, um, their minds start to wander, and particularly a whole network of regions lights up in their brain. And um, in the past, this was thought to be a kind of you know uh, power saving standby mode of uh, brain operation but it turns out that uh, this network in the brain it uses a lot of energy so it must be important evolutionarily and um, and what we now know is that it's uh, it's it's very important for organizing those top-down processes in the brain for sort of uh, corralling them uh, uh, narrowing the focus of of our uh, internal attention and uh, um, sort of choosing, choosing what we what we think about, where our minds go when when they're given the freedom to wander, and um, uh, what happens in meditation is that by focusing on the breath, for example, or any other bodily sens- sensation for that matter, is that activity in the default mode network goes down. It's um, it's stifled so that we uh, the mind stops wandering. And we stop, we stop imposing um, the the brain's deep cognitive models on our perception. You know, uh, we fill the mind with the sensation of breathing, and so we boost the upward flow of prediction errors through through the brain's processing hierarchy. And um, we we put a stop, we put a break on 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 the flow of uh, the automatic flow of of uh, prediction thoughts and. Uh, prejudices and uh you know all, all sorts of uh, planning and decision making that uh, that goes on if we if we let the mind have its own way as it were um and the salience network is uh meanwhile is is the the network we that the brain uses to automatically focus its attention on aspects of the environment that are important for for our survival for example uh uh, food or or mates or uh, also uh, dangerous things that, that put our lives at risk, and so this is the network that uh, jumps into life whenever these opportunities and threats become apparent in the environment, and uh, it also has a very important role to play in 
in directing our attention and updating our, our cognitive models of the world yeah. and uh, determining our, our behavior. Yes. Wouldn't it be fair to say, James, that, that both the default mode network and the salience network are the neural substrates of ego? I mean, would you go so far as to say that? I would, absolutely, yeah. Um, when when people uh, when the default mode network fires up, people they tend to they they think self-referential thoughts. Uh, they uh, they think about the, the uh, characteristics uh, not only of themselves but all, also other people in their social environment. Um, and so, when we focus on our breath, when we stifle the uh, activity in the default mode network, sense of self it does start to fall away. And we start to to realize that the self is a kind of it's a construction of of the uh, of the mind, in particular default mode network, in giving us this kind of this sense of autobiographical social selfhood. Yeah, and, and again, this, the reason this is so helpful is because now when you're engaged in your meditation practice and you're tuning in to the underlying narrative that is in fact um, you know so. Uh, deeply connected to both of these networks, you, you you actually develop, at least I do, a, a greater sense of appreciation that that um, meditation is difficult not only because of so, the social, cultural, phenomenological uh, challenges and obstacles, but you actually have certain um, brain networks that in a certain way you could say are against you. In other words, they're so deeply ingrained through the processes of neuroplasticity and the like that they, they in fact do become our default mode. But I, I, I've, I've actually gotten into some sparky conversations with neuroscientists around this, James, uh, when, when they talk about default mode network. I think it's a slight misnomer because on one level, it's only a default in the untrained mind. In other words, um, in the natural state, mindfulness being fully present, being lucid is in fact the natural state. That's the fundamental, true, irreducible default mode. Um, but on top of that, we have these adventitious defilements of one, one of which, in fact, is this now referred to as default mode. So I think it's a slight misnomer that doesn't pay homage to the wisdom traditions that say, well, wait a second, that, that's not the true default. That's a constructed default. It's not really where we go. It's where we've been trained to go. So does that hold water with you? Absolutely, it does, because um, uh, in children, the, the default mode network isn't nearly so strongly connected it's not so so tightly wired up so uh in a way they they have more of a of a buddha-like uh, sense of consciousness it's more uh they're more open to uh sensory experience and uh, uh enjoying the moment you know you could see it in in their eyes when they're playing whereas uh uh, by the time you reach your teens, the default mode network, it's become really quite bossy and it, it, it starts to dominate your, your cognition. And uh, you, you kind of lose that, that sense of wonder and awe and authenticity that, uh, that children have. And uh, when we meditate and also uh, after taking psychedelic drugs, for example, uh, you you feel what it's like to to get back that that authenticity at least for for a while anyway. So yeah. you know it's it's a wonderful thing. You know, we 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 haven't lost it forever, as you say. It's still there. We just have to find our way back somehow. Exactly, exactly. And to me, the, this this is another thing I want to say about how this data isn't just abstract theoretical scientific mumbo jumbo that has immediate applicability for meditators because. 
for instance, when you're sitting down in meditation, really in a very real way, um, when we sit down, it's it's like we're we're going uh, on a sit-in. We're going on strike um, against the narrative of the default mode network. And and I think we sometimes feel how this is then registered indeed as a rude interruption of this narrative that that after a while you don't want the narrative interrupted you know you you, you feel the incredible force the habit the karma um, that has been created by these these networks and by understanding that these are biologically neurologically ingrained to me what it does is it, it brings a sense of humor and levity and it's like holy moly look how deeply conditioned I am to in fact fall into this non-lucid state, this, this non-lucid network, then in fact I reinstate and um, reify and make stronger every time I capitulate to it, every time I capitulate to a discursive thought, every time I capitulate to the narrative and believe in the storyline, I'm making this kind of grand canyon of defaults even deeper. Um, and so what, what this ties into for me, James, is this I think quite powerful statement that whether we know it or not, we are always meditating. We are always either becoming increasingly familiar with the processes of, of, of lucidity, awareness, consciousness, mindfulness, or because we're so deeply conditioned in these default systems, we're becoming even more familiar um, with this kind of darker side of, of uh, the machinations of the brain. So I, I'm curious, is that then your experience both as a researcher and a meditator? Uh, yes, it has. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, what I think what you're saying is that uh, whatever we're doing, we're we're creating synaptic connections between between nerves. We're we're creating associations, and uh, whether we're sitting on a cushion or or not, you know, this this is happening, and it's absolutely true. If 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 you allow it. It will go in the wrong direction, and you'll go deeper and deeper in, into uh, into this state of uh, of delusion and uh, you know automatic uh, thinking and behaviour. And what what particularly fascinates fascinates me when um, I'm I'm sitting meditating is that um, a, a few a few simple uh, instructions can change everything. Uh, I've I've known some meditation teachers who who they they, they simply say. Um, we're not doing anything. We're not going anywhere. We're not trying to trying to change anything. We're just sitting, and uh, that's surprisingly powerful because uh, the the default mode network is is kind of it's it it's involved in planning. It's it's constantly asking us, what are you going to do about this? Do you like this or do you not like it? Are you, you know, are you going to push against it? Are you going to run away from it? So while you're sitting, you, you you feel pain, you you hear distracting sounds, and you're constantly being pulled this way and that. You're you're being impelled to to act, to do something, to change to change the uh, your sensory environment in some way. You know, either by by moving or or you know. Uh, 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 complaining about about somebody making a distracting noise, and uh, the the pleasure of meditation is realizing that uh, if you say no, I'm I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just I'm just going to I'm just going to sit here and allow everything to flow to flow through me without reacting, without trying to change it in any way. 
it, you start to feel so much more relaxed and peaceful and empowered and uh, and wonderfully tranquil. It's it's uh, the first time it happens. It's it's a it's a revelation. It really is. Yes, that's really beautiful. And so so let's have this um, back in just briefly to this whole um, venture of dreaming and. How, how can we use the nocturnal mind when this upward flow, you know, the, the, the classic um, maxim that I, I originally heard from Stephen LaBerge, you know, who, as you know, is, is really arguably the forefather of lucid dreaming in the West, where, where he has this beautiful maxim that, that you reiterate in your own way in the book, where he says, you know, waking consciousness is dreaming consciousness with sensory constraints. Dreaming consciousness is waking consciousness without sensory constraints. And, and to me, this is such a compelling um, maxim because it illuminates a number of things. One, of course, is that the fundamental consciousness is a commonality between the two. And so both in your personal experience, James, and also with your research, how can we use the nocturnal mind, even as it's falling asleep and in the hypnagogic state and we start to see the narrative literally unweaving and falling apart. Um, and also in particular, when we have both lucid and non-lucid dreams, how, how can we use the nocturnal mind as a way to um, explore these processes um, and to bring them into the light of consciousness and therefore relate to them in a more lucid way? So if you don't mind, from both your personal experience, like what is the role of dreams in your life today? And also, so to speak, theoretically or scientifically, how can we use the nighttime mind to really work with these um, with these tenets? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, um, I need to give a hat tip to uh, two fantastic researchers. Uh, one is Carl Friston at uh, University College London, and the other is Alan Hobson at uh, Harvard Medical School. And they're both uh, world-renowned experts in their field. And... Um, it's their it's their proposal that the uh, that the, the the dreaming mind is a, a virtual reality generator, and that in fact the waking mind is also a virtual reality generator, but um, one constrained by by sensory evidence and and top top down top down executive control. So in dreaming, what we're seeing is simply um, the regular conscious brain activity, as you say. Um, stripped of that sensory uh, and executive uh, reality reality checking, so you know the brain just has a you know its its restraints are are untied and it's it's let loose and we get these wonderful wonderful bizarre uh, exciting terrifying narratives, um, uh, which. Uh, in actual fact, uh, according to, to uh, Alan Hobson and Carl Friston, the evolutionary importance of, of that dreaming state is to allow the, the mind a little downtime, a uh, little disconnection so that it, it, can, it can gently rewire itself. It can optimize itself uh, by um, pruning away some of the uh, excess synapses that build up during our, our learning experiences during the day. Because, because the problem, the fundamental problem uh, with uh, being a creature with a reasonably large brain is that uh, throughout the day, um, its wiring becomes increasingly uh, accurate. It, it, can, it, it, it more accurately reflects reality. But as it does that, 
it becomes more complicated, more hidebound. Um, it's a bit like a multinational company that that has been it's been around for a long time, and it's there's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy, and it's it's got clogged up with all with all this uh, with all this stuff. And uh, what happens during sleep and in our dreams is that uh, by taking the brain offline, by by disconnecting the senses and executive control. Uh, those intermediate layers in the processing hierarchy, they have a chance to rearrange themselves, to, to prune away any uh, uh, redundant, weak connections. And that, that is, is refreshing. It replenishes the brain's ability to adapt to changing circumstances. So that's, according to uh, Hobson and Friston, uh, that's, uh, that's why we dream. And... Um, uh, but um, you know, there's there's more, as you say, uh, uh, because uh, we have this re remarkable ability if we if we train ourselves to actually uh, to let the executive control uh, top layer of that processing hierarchy jump back into life, to spark to spark back into life, and to actually observe what's going on and. Uh, and to learn from what's going on, for example, if we're we're having a nightmare, to to realise that this is just a fantasy. It's it's not it's not really happening, and to be empowered by that. Uh, and in the same way that, uh, that during the day, having having maybe having had that sort of insight, having to having uh, processed that insight in our sleep. Uh, Maybe you know we uh, that that lesson is it's it's built in, and during the day we we may be less less deluded, less taken in by the things that scare us, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, public speaking or spiders, snakes, uh, heights. So you know this is what happens uh, uh, naturally in our dreams, but we can we can uh, supercharge it by by actually uh, getting back a little a little conscious lucid awareness and. Uh, you know, taking control of the whole process for for our own uh, uh, psychological benefit. Yes, exactly, and those are what we know, of course, as lucid dreams. Yes, and so you talk really beautifully about that as you know uh, processes of metacognition, being aware of aware awareness, and also what you define as secondary consciousness. Um, so, talk to us just a little bit more about that. And 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 one of the things that really I have to say when I read it just totally jazzed me. Um, was when you write about those uh, aspects of the brain, the uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the uh, frontal orbital cortex, and, and how do you pronounce it? Is it the precunius? Is that how you pronounce the third? I believe so. Yeah, precunius. Yeah, yeah. It's a quite quite a, uh, a rarefied part of the brain. It turns out to be really quite important for uh, metacognition and lucidity. Yes, exactly. And what just blew me away, and of course made me realize that on one level is no doubt because you'll see when I'm going with this that that you you put forth that these are these three aspects of the brain that are that are in fact part of the, uh, the frontal cortex which just for our listeners this is the part of the brain that is, is most recently um, associated with neurological biological evolution and, and it's as if you were if you were looking straight up if you were to somehow take your eyes and look straight up you would be looking into this this more yeah, I'm kind of it's interesting because it, it, it also is has kind of a physical representation like the you know the, literally the frontal part of evolution that is absent in apes for instance which is why 
the, the, the head of an ape um, slopes back so quickly because they don't have some of these um, frontal and prefrontal um, um, aspects of brain. And so these are, as, as you write about, these are in fact what come back online when we're engaged in lucid dreaming. And they, in, in a certain sense, as you argue, represent the forefront of the evolutionary line. And, and I have to toss in, and I'm sure you remember this from Matthew Walker's book because you reference it, that he doesn't talk a whole lot about lucid dreams in his book, but he has this amazingly uh, kind of revelatory comment towards the end where he says, you know, it's entirely possible that that lucid dreamers represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution. And so that was, you know, what you wrote there just completely dovetailed with what Matthew talks about. Um, so say a little bit more about those brain processes, those, those metacognitive aspects of the brain, secondary consciousness, and how we can cultivate that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's remarkable how many different ways there are to cultivate that. And they all, they all have the common factor of focusing our attention and developing our powers of vigilance. So, for example, if you play uh, video games, uh, uh, role-play video games or action, you know, shoot 'em up video games. Um, your your attention is focused because uh, you know you don't want to be shot, you don't want to be uh, caught by the monster, and uh, and so it's it's a, a very powerful uh, metacognitive training to um, to to focus this 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 ability. And in the same way, when you're driving a car, when you're you're maybe not very experienced driving a car, and you're you have to really work hard to focus your attention on the road and the traffic and pedestrians. And that is also um, building that, that metacognitive muscle, the ability to, to focus your, your attention and be vigilant. And um, meditation obviously is, is the uh, ancient uh, spiritual uh, example of, uh, of doing that. And uh, interestingly, people who meditate uh, a lot, people have been meditating for years, they have more lucid dreams. And um, it's this this metacognitive secondary consciousness that they carry with them into their dreams, the ability to um, to focus to focus attention and to see through to see through the fantasy. Um, and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the orbitofrontal cortex that you reference, um, as you say, they sit just above the orbits of the eyes and slightly around the corner, the side of the heads, if you can imagine, on, on either side. Um, and uh, uh, those are really the crown jewels of our cognition, because uh, uh, as you say, other, other primates like chimpanzees, uh, those parts of their brains are not nearly so well developed and we we can see that the difference perhaps is is that we're we're so much better at reflecting on our own behavior and we have so much more more control over our behavior uh, because of this ability to to stand back and uh uh and to make to make uh, decisions which which is really uh, the essence of free will uh and so really the joy of these these practices uh, that uh, that foster metacognition is, is that they, they put us back in control and it's uh, you know while a lot of my book is a little sh uh, shocking it does uh, uh, provide this sort of lifeline of, of hope that if you if you practice uh, you, you you will rediscover these uh, the, 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 the free will the, the freshness the uh, flexibility 
that uh, that comes from having this uh, uh, this this extra component of of your processing hierarchy, which which can sometimes fall into uh, into disuse if if we're not careful if if we don't if we don't take care to cultivate it. Yeah, that's really, and I, I say this with tongue in cheek, but for our listeners, of course, this is why nightclub. You know, the code word for nightclub itself is the evolutionary club, right? So, so <laughs> we're, we're leading. We're leading the the frontal edge. Yeah. Of yeah. <laughs> we can pride ourselves of being yes. being in the vanguard of this of this uh, process. Yeah. <laughs> we're uh, we're the pioneers, and and of course, you know. <clears throat> We're always under attack, and I always talk about this. You can always tell who the pioneers are because they're the ones that have all the arrows in their back. And uh, <clears throat> so, whereas we lead this yeah. edge, hot shots, and I always then say, well, geez, you have to remember those arrows, if they're coming at you, <clears throat> hitting you on the back, they're shot by those behind you. So, tongue in cheek, um, nightclub is basically the evolutionary club. <clears throat> and <laughs> what you say here is, is so, it's just so helpful, James, because this is why, in terms of meditation, I I argue that meditation, you know, in my um, kind of system of methodologies for bringing about lucidity, meditation is is unquestionably the, the super technique. Um, and as you know, research is, is just like repeatedly shown that over and over. Meditation masters, not only do they have more frequent lucid dreams, but in the mind of a meditation master, all their dreams are, are lucid because in the mind of a meditation master, there is no such thing as non-lucidity, um, which again, that's just a code word in my book for mindlessness, for forgetfulness, for distraction. And so what ways, just to reinstate the importance of what you're saying here, James, is that the way we can cultivate these metacognitive um, faculties completely represented in, in the trajectory of meditation is in fact to work with various iterations of non-lucidity. I, I, in other words, a lucid dream is a remembered dream. It's a mindful dream. It's a non-distracted dream. And so you can work with non-distraction, mindfulness, and uh, for, uh, forgetfulness in this way, and therefore uh, empower your ability. We don't have to be victims of non-lucid states of mind day or night. We have the control, as, as you were talking about, to bring about more awareness, more control, a reinstatement of um, awareness of these processes that otherwise take completely, completely control us. And we think we're living so-called conscious lives, but this is in fact what it means to be asleep. Um, or like Christ said, you know, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, because we're just buffeted around by these, these default mode networks and these other processes. And so um, how has this played out in your own life, James? Because you, you referenced several times that you explore um, hypnotism, lucid dreaming, and drugs and the like. So, can you talk to us a little bit about your own lucid dreaming practice and, and how this has informed and transformed that for you? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wouldn't claim that my uh, lucid dreaming practice is, is particularly advanced. I'm, I'm still a student. I'm still still learning and uh, enjoying learning. Um, but um, I remember in, in London when I started out, I got this idea that um, after reading uh, your book and, and Stephen LaBerge's, uh, one of his books as well, I got this idea that um, uh, I, lived, I lived in a very noisy part of London. There were, there were a lot of sirens of uh, fire engines and ambulances and police cars. And I thought, well, you know, this is uh, throughout the day, I'm getting this, this cue. Uh, and I could use this. I could use this. So every time I hear a siren, 
um, I'll, I'll take this file card out of my pocket and I'll right. read it. Yes. And what, what I had written on the file card was uh, simply, am I dreaming? Um, and so every time I, I heard a siren, I'd be cued to to ask myself this, this really important question. And uh, what I hoped was that uh, at night, um, because we, we lived right on the road, so there were sirens throughout the night, I hoped that at night, if I heard a siren in my dreams, it would cue me to think, uh, to picture this card and think, is this a dream? You know, is this really happening? And so that was the idea anyway. It didn't work out quite quite how I hoped it would. But what it did was it uh, it constantly reminded me throughout the throughout the day to ask the question. It, it, it kept it at the fore of my mind, the forefront of my mind. Um, and uh, it uh, it kind of built the motivation and, and the, you know, the uh, uh, the interest uh, in, in lucid dreaming, which did actually carry over. Uh, into my dreams and I had a, you know I had a had had a few lucid dreams and it, it was a terrific a terrific excitement um, I can't claim to have had uh, very many lucid dreams but just just knowing that it's possible is yeah. a is a breakthrough and it, it provides an impetus to to keep to keep working and uh, I also kept a journal which obviously is a fantastic way to uh, to train yourself to to remember your dreams, to uh, and to spot particular signs, dream signs. Um, for me, uh, a particularly strong sign was uh, uh, climbing. For some reason, I, I was always climbing in my dreams. You know, climbing scaffoldings and uh, and uh, craggy terrains. And another one, uh, very very uh, common one, is uh, I'd find myself kind of moonwalking. I'd be walking perfectly normally and my strides would get longer and longer and longer and uh i found several of several times i've been able to to uh uh to shake myself out of non-lucidity simply because i recognized that this this wasn't you know this wasn't quite right this this isn't how reality normally works with uh gravity being as strong as it normally is so you know i found that's another terrific way of of, uh, of waking up to the fact that I'm dreaming, and you know I've had some lovely experiences of uh, you know being able to uh, levitate and uh, tumble in midair and dance in midair. Uh, but I have to say that's probably about as far as I get because I, I get so thrilled when I realise that I'm I'm dreaming. It you know the excitement wakes me up. So uh, so I've, I have some way to go. I have to say. Yeah, yeah, but at least you're at least you've crack the door open and, and as you That's know right. yeah anything anything else i mean lucid dreaming is just a it's a discipline just like any other and that with increased facility and, and practice you learn how to walk this tightrope between getting um you know not too tight not too loose if you're too loose uh, you fall back into the non-lucid dream you lose your lucidity or if you're too tight too excited you pop back out into the waking state and so with increased practice on this tightrope, we, we find our balance between these states and and we end up having longer lucid dreams that are more clear, that are more um, uh, stable. And then really, um, in, this may not be completely aware for you, James, is that in, especially in the Tibetan Buddhist approach, the fundamental charter of these journeys is to, to realize the, the equanimous nature of all states of consciousness, that fundamentally 
um, we realized that the waking state and the dreaming state essentially are no different. Um, and so this is what leads me into the next um, set of questions I really want to talk to you about, because really, in so many ways, everything in your book circumambulates the question, what is reality? Um, and so let's talk about that for a while, because okay. you mentioned through the work of Kristen and Hobson how uh, the brain is a virtual reality generator, and, and there's a whole lot of things we can talk about in terms of virtual reality. But circumambulating all this stuff is, is this notion of reality and, and how we can discover what is real by contradistinction. If, if we explore um, so-called altered states or states that are not real, they can help us understand what reality is. Um, and so if when somebody asks you on the elevator, <laughs> and hopefully the elevator is a long one, um, how do you respond to the question with your marvelous research, what is reality? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, what you're saying is so, so true. Uh, the brain science confirms uh, exactly that. You know, the, the ancient wisdom that the, the waking mind and the sleeping mind are, are the one, one and the same thing, because the underlying mechanism is exactly the same. We're, we're using the same cognitive machinery to dream that we use in waking consciousness as well. And, but the, here's the rub for, for the brain. Um, the, the problem with, with uh, discovering what reality is, that we can, never, we can never know reality directly. We, we can only experience the world through, uh, through our senses. And they're dealing with some very, very uh, uh, weak, noisy data. So this is really the origin of, of the, whole, the whole problem of, uh, of uh, consciousness, uh, because in order to, to impose order, in order to, to stay one step ahead of the game, uh, what the brain does is it has, to, it has to predict what's happening based on its past experience. It has to use its, its models of reality uh, in order to, to get a grip on what's happening in a very fast-changing, noisy environment, and so your your question about uh, what is reality? Well, uh, yes, there is reality, but we're always we're always going to have trouble uh, uh, keeping keeping abreast of it because the data just isn't good enough, and so our minds they have to help us out by. Um, by predicting, by expecting, by, by imposing this order on what is fundamentally a very, very confusing, ambiguous uh, set of data that comes from our, our eyes and our ears and so on. And uh, so um, I don't know whether that answers your question. Oh my gosh, it's just, it's just a segue into so many things. I, I mean, I, again, I would, I would slightly challenge, contest this established view that the brain helps us out, um, and I understand that how how the brain and, and this is what you write about so beautifully uh, imposes order um, on on reality. But here's my riff on this, James: is that that's basically ego machination. That that fundamentally the imposition of order is ego's inability to um, stand on the empty or bardo-like nature of reality. That, that, and, and that's what's the shocking part of this book and also really the shocking part of the wisdom traditions 
is that the reality is not what you think it is. It's not what we impose upon it. And in, in my um, image I use here, James, is like, you know, the, the touch of King Midas, that we unwittingly run around and transform reality into our version of gold, which is solid, lasting, and independence, a reified reality. That's not the nature of reality. That's the, the nature of a reified, imposed reality driven by the, you know, basically the fear of ego. And so um, when we understand that the, that the nature of reality is quantized, that it's discontinuous, that it's basically, you know, there are, you talk about Bardo a little bit in your book, Bardo teachings, but the archetype of Bardo is understanding the discontinuous kind of porous nature of reality altogether. And so um, when you talk about, and I understand where this is coming from, but I challenge this just a little bit, and I'd love to hear your version or your response to this challenge is that we talk about, you know, the brain helps us out. Um, I would say, yeah, um, only at a relative level because it helps ego out. It, it helps um, ego maintain right. its false sense of order. And then fundamentally, it doesn't help us out. It, it obscures reality. It, it, it basically creates and imputes its version of the world onto it, freezing the world in its reified image. And so, um, yeah, I mean, say more about how that lands with you or not. Yeah, no, you've really uh, struck upon the, the, the crux of, of, uh, of this whole thing because uh, uh, it is a, a two-edged, it's a two-edged sword. Um, uh, from, from one perspective, from the evolutionary perspective of uh, survival, of getting food, shelter, and, uh, and mates, you know, the basics, um, having an ego is exactly what we need to get our genes into the next generation. So, you know, that's how we've got we've got lumbered with this setup. But you're also absolutely right that we're we're also burdened with it because uh, everything everything becomes egocentric. It becomes how can I how can I leverage this situation to get more of this that or the other for myself or to get rid of uh, these unpleasant, inconvenient things. So um, we may have evolved to be terrifically successful in this world, but I mean, obviously we're, we're, we're ravaging the world in, in the process. We're so effective at, uh, at these uh, ego-driven uh, uh, things that, 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 that we do all the time that we're, we're, we're destroying the environment, but that, that's another question. But you're, you're right in saying that we, we lose out spiritually because we we've lost the big picture. It's all about us, and uh, we we lose the you know the magnificence, the awe of of uh, of, of the world, the universe, of, of uh, other creatures. You know, it's it's kind of lost to us because our focus is so very narrow. But it's also very very successful in uh, biological terms. So you know that's it's a two-edged sword and. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's uh, sad that our obsession with the ego, even though it may make us successful in biological terms, in psychological terms, uh, it lumbers us uh, at times with uh, depression and anxiety, and uh, you know all those other mental illnesses, OCD, PTSD, every letter in the alphabet. Uh, so uh, you know, there's there's good stuff, but there's a lot of bad stuff that comes with it. You know, the baggage that comes with it. Yes, exactly. And, and I think that I'm going to harp on this just a little bit because I think this is so important. And, and this 
James is why I, I'm a big fan of integral theory, which um, allows these kind of uh, relationships between relative and absolute truth to play themselves out. And, and by that, what I mean is that there is, in, in, the, in the trajectory of evolution, there is a place for um, ego. Um, ego is, has, it has a very powerful developmental role, but is scholars and mystics that said ego is fundamentally an arrested form of development. And, and if we don't have a larger, more integrated, integral approach, and realize ego's um, limited evolutionary place, then ego, classically, you know, in the in the kind of a realm of science going into scientism, um, ego then colonizes and dismisses um, all other states, and and it's really this kind of colonization is what's taking place in the world all around us. And I'm, I'm sure you've read Robert Wright's book um, on um, why Buddhism is true. You know, he he speaks from the from the, the perspective of evolutionary psychology, how it is that it is to ego's advantage to see the world in a uh, fictitious way, to see the world as composed of form. That has its place in the role of evolution. And the reason I'm harping on this, James, is that for spiritual practitioners listening to this and meditators, this data is of paramount importance in terms of understanding the formal evolutionary Forces. Sometimes I, I playfully talk about them as the forces of the dark side because they're dark because they're mostly unconscious. But there, there are so many profound evolutionary processes involved that fundamentally conspire, co-conspire to keep us away from truth, to keep us away, in my lingo, from lucidity, from enlightenment. And if we understand these incredibly powerful subversive forces that are literally burned into our DNA, into the very matrix of our, of our body-mind complex, we will then have a greater sense of appreciation why it is that there's so few enlightened beings walking on this planet, why it is that it takes such perseverance and determination, humor um, to, to get to the enlightened state, because we have so many bad habits, um, karma, however you want to talk about it, that are literally burned into our body-mind. And, and this I mean, there's so much we could say about this, the role of fear and all that. But I'm curious if, if this also speaks to your experience and understanding. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with every word there. It's it's uh, it's the karma, the accumulated uh, biological baggage that is really it can make us very, very unhappy and unsatisfied with life. Uh, I mean, my my own my own life at middle age, uh, you know, a few years back. Uh, uh, I, I was feeling the force of that, really. You know, there's the, the anger, the the unconscious prejudice, the uh, you know constant irritation and sense of dissatisfaction. And so, you know, uh, evolution doesn't care about middle-aged guys like uh, like me because uh, you know, in theory, we we, we will have uh, created offspring already. And so, evolu evolution doesn't care anymore. You know. Uh, it can let us go. It doesn't matter what happens to us. Um, but uh, that's that's not a very satisfying outcome for us. And uh, what fascinates me, um, and I hope I bring this out in the in the book, is that um, a sense of meaning and purpose in life um, is uh, is very powerful for improving people's uh, uh, well-being and happiness, and and indeed their their longevity has been found over and over again that. Uh, you know, far from being optional extras, this uh, sense of uh, 
meaning, you know, whether it's spiritual or mystical, doesn't really matter. It's a sense of of, uh, of purpose, of uh, structure that goes beyond the ego. Um, turns out to be uh, very important for our sense of fulfillment and happiness, and uh, altered states can can uh, help to uh, to leverage that sense, uh, even if it it takes uh, going out of our minds a little. You know, there's this famous uh, tagline from the film um, "Girl Interrupted" by uh, by Kaysen, Susanna Kaysen. Uh, the tagline of the film, based on the novel, is uh, "Sometimes you have to go a little crazy to to stay sane." And uh, that's how it is with altered states, uh, uh, whether it's uh, meditation or or dreaming or, or psychedelics. So those are kind of crazy states, but they do re- restore uh, a sense of uh, meaning and belonging. They they uh, diminish the power of the ego, and uh, you know the the benefits are are terrific. And I I really hope more people start to start to realize them. Yeah, and, and again, you know, another way to flip the, the tables on this just a little bit is that we can say, really, just by um, definition or contradistinction, that these so what you call crazy states or altered states. I mean, I, I think they're incredibly important to explore through whatever mechanism you're talking about, whether it's um, psychedelic drugs, and, and we can maybe talk a little bit more about that, um, hypnosis, dreams, meditation, and the like. But what it does for me is, in a certain way, and this is this is the charter that I have engaged um, my own exploration of the dreaming state with, is that in a certain way, by making these states more real to us, and, and if, if we're careful, we could say, quote, unquote, by reifying these so-called altered states, we, in fact, de-reify this state. And, and the reason I say that is that, as you know, from the wisdom traditions, this is the altered state. Seeing, seeing what we determine to be waking consciousness from a wisdom perspective, this is the altered state. Um, and so by exploring altered states in all these different varieties, by implication, however subtle and unconscious that may be, we're actually de-reifying, at least in my experience, and looking at this state as the altered state. So I'm curious yeah, how that's... that's- that's very interesting, yeah, because uh, we do we do have this assumption that our current state of consciousness is is it. You know, this is this is consciousness, but it's not true. It's just another it's just another variety of consciousness. It's just another um, uh, another narrative created by the uh, virtual reality generator of, of of the brain. It's only one among many many alternatives, and uh, I think. Uh, what you're driving at is is the the alternative reality that is free of ego is is closer to to truth than uh, than you know this this state we call uh, ordinary. Yeah, no kidding. And so how how has um well actually you know let me come back to this a little bit. So I'm curious how this settles with you, James. I mean when when I look what I'm trying to get at here, and again I'm I'm, I'm Coming back to this point, because I think it's just so central, this whole idea of, of dream versus reality and, and, and fundamentally how arbitrary those definitions are. I mean, they're, what we impute to be reality and what we project or impute to be dream, um, as I alluded to earlier, fundamentally that distinction falls apart altogether. But we can use one to help us understand the other. And 
And for me, when I look at the, the, the characteristics of the dream state, like what is it that defines dream for me? Well, I would say, okay, something that's discontinuous, unstable, disjointed, um, multi-fragmentary, and et cetera, the usual uh, adjectives and adverbs we might use for the dream state. And then, and then I realize, okay, what exactly, why, why am I designating that to be a dream versus this? And obviously this reality seems to have a little bit more stability because of sensory constraint. And so what I put forth is that the only reason, oh, so let me back up. So the reason we define dream to be a dream is because we have the contrast, the stasis of a more stable reality, what we call waking consciousness. It's a, it's a really arbitrary distinction. And, and to me, what then I do is, is I go, okay, the only reason we haven't woken up to this waking reality as a dream is we simply haven't experienced the state of mind that is more stable, more um, durable, more contiguous. And, and in fact, this is exactly what the meditative agendas allow us to do. And so that if we can take refuge in, in what is literally called the changeless nature, and I mean, wow, there's nothing more stable than the changeless nature, the nature of the mind, the clear light mind that you talk about in your book, that you also know is, is Mahamudra, Dzogchen, or all these things. If we can, in fact, gain access to this irreducible stability, it is, in fact, from that perspective that we can look at this reality and say, this is a dream. So that, to me, seems to be what the meditative charters are actually all about. And we can use the what's sometimes referred to as the double delusion or the example dream as an intimation of this process that we can wake up by waking up from the nighttime dream, <clears throat> we gain a hint of what's involved in waking up from the so-called daytime dream. So has, has that been your experience? Does that speak to you? Uh, well, it does, but um, uh, I agree with every word you say that the, the, the sticking point really is that it is, uh, these are, are quite difficult, rarefied states that uh, um, People, people who have been meditating for several decades may be able to stabilize their minds sufficiently to, to gain that perspective, to, uh, to have access to the, to the clear light mind um, uh, that, that comes through uh, uh, bardo yoga and uh, dream yoga. But um, I, don't, I don't know how many of us have, have the ability to, to get there in a, in a single lifetime. Um, and uh, you know, perhaps you can you can help me out. So is, do we really have access to to uh, the clear light mind as ordinary individuals? Yes, we do. You know, I mean, and, and that's part of the kicker. Is um, first of all, it, it, I'm sure you know this. It's the idea of what's referred to as pointing out transmission, which is either when a teacher points it out to you, <clears throat> or through some recognition either a fleeting recognition of, of uh, deep dreamless sleep or a fleeting recognition of the silent gap or bardo between each and every thought. What, what I attempt to do, James, is in fact elucidate, articulate, and, and attempt to stabilize precisely this, that um, one of the reasons we miss this clear light mind is where, this is just my imagery, is where 
looking for Hollywood when it's more like Oklahoma or Kansas. It's just <laughs> subtle, simple. And we, we fundamentally miss it all the time. And so really the charter that I have come to understand and that really constitutes the entirety or the majority of my own meditation practice these days is in fact recognition. Um, it's like it says in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which I'm sure you've come across, you know, recognition and liberation are simultaneous. And so the kicker is to have this state that is referenced by so many different names, clear light mind and the other, have this state pointed out to us between each and every thought we have access to it. Um, every night when we fall asleep, we have access to it. Deep meditation, um, and especially, of course, when we die. And so by pointing that out, then then it's like Houston Smith, you know, the scholar so beautifully said, the process of the, of the path becomes transforming these flashes of illumination into abiding light. That's really quite beautiful to me. Um, and so, yes, I, I think it's, it's absolutely available to us once we start to appreciate, and this is where your book comes in so beautifully, just the extent of our conditioning, the extent of our hypnosis of the, all these forces that, that keep us so dark. But because this is the natural state, and these other states are adventitious, there are superimpositions upon it, then it's actually, and this, I say this because it's important to inspire and encourage meditators that it's it's a lot, even when we go to sleep, it's a lot, we can wake up a lot faster than we can go to sleep. You know, we can spend hours tossing and turning in bed before we fall asleep. And, and we've been tossing and turning in samsara for millennia. I mean, if you believe in reincarnation from beginningless time, but it just takes one flash of light, one match in a cave that's been ensconced in darkness for billions of years to illuminate and eliminate that darkness of ignorance. And then again, the charter becomes one of keeping it on. And so that's why I, I'm so jazzed on not only the diurnal or daily meditations, but like you said earlier, you know, we spend a third of our lives lost in these usually oblivious states of mind, sleep and dream. But with these teachings and with the support of your book, we can gain access to these flashes of illumination and then gain stability um, more rapidly. But that's really the key, isn't it, James? Like, you know, as as you know, Richie Davidson's beautiful book, um, Altered Traits, where he talks about the, the incredibly important difference between states and traits. And we can use um, psychotropic agents, psychedelic agents, and, and the like that, that you write about in your experience as a way to turn on this light. But keeping it on, of course, is the process of the path. So, yeah, I mean, that's my kind of charter my riff on, on this really, I think, um, important aspect of what to me seems to be, in many ways, the essence of the entire path altogether, is that you know, reality is pointed out, um, whatever that may be. It's certainly not conceptual. It's it's a, a ineffable experience. But then, because it is natural, we can rest, relax, open to that state, and, uh, you know, allow it to become more and more part of our lives. And so using the night, you know, using night school and all these practices to facilitate that is part of what our little charter is all about. So, yeah. yeah that's great. That's a really optimistic message. And I, I, I hope you're right. And I, I believe you're right, because uh, certainly um, uh, with psychedelic drugs, for example, and also with extraordinary states like a, a near-death experience, uh, these can transform people's lives. But as you say, you know, you have to do some work to to keep the light on, to uh, you know, to to learn how to switch it back on. 
and uh, in uh, psychedelic science it's called integration and uh, it involves ongoing work with uh, with uh, meditation and uh, dance and music and you know re-engaging re with life as as a way to to perpetuate you know the wonderful insight that you have when you're deep deep in a trip and you're in a a bright void where uh, your your ego has uh, dissolved and uh, and you know that's a wonderful flash of insight and uh, uh, I really hope you're right that it's possible to to get back there with a little work that you know you can uh, you can cultivate uh, this uh, this insight through uh, training such as uh, lucid dreaming. Yeah, yeah, and again, this is this is why I'm so excited about the contributions from the West that that. Obviously, I'm deeply allied to Eastern thought, in particular, you know, the Buddhist approach to things. But I, I'm also a very, very deep fan of Western uh, approaches that augmented, supplemented. And, and so the West has a great deal to offer. I mean, virtual technology, the virtual reality gaming that you talk about so beautifully in your book, the chapters connected to that. And then um, if you have a few seconds to share with us this really provocative, sparky arena of the, the psychotropic agents, um, psilocybin, which, by the way, in our state has been decriminalized. I'm not sure you know that. So now... Um, that's yes, I, I heard that. No, that's uh, that's a wonderful thing. So yeah. is it the whole state or is it is it just Denver? It's just Denver, is it? Well, you know, I, I, I don't know the exact specifics. I can't imagine how they would be able to restrict it just the number. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's a step forward. And so if you have some, some energy left for us, talk to us about how that journey has um, helped you, supported you, and, and what, you know, because you, you start the book with a really um, very courageous, and I, I, I found beautiful um, rendering of your experience, some of your trepidations around ayahuasca and the like, how have those agents fit into your life and, and what do you see as their potentiality? Because you, as you know, with Michael Pollan's book and now yours and, and others that are coming out, um, I have to tell you, it, it's reinstated my interest in these agents, which I haven't engaged in you know, for decades, but I, I find it really quite provocative. So can you talk to us a little bit about that, how that has yeah. been? Yeah, no, it's a really it's a really big story, and from a personal point of view, it's uh, it's a journey that I was very scared to take because, uh, as I relate in the book, uh, I have a family history of bipolar disorder. I don't have the condition myself. Uh, I, I'm very lucky, um, but uh, the the trouble with psychedelic drugs is that they do run a small but very real risk of triggering mania in susceptible individuals, either people uh, suffering from bipolar or schizophrenia, or people who have uh, close family members with those conditions. So um, going into my experience in Peru with an ayahuasca ceremony, um, there were times when I was terrified that I was going to, uh, to lose my mind. And yet uh, there was this curiosity that uh, that drove me on. And I'd read so much about the potential benefits of psychedelics in uh, in breaking down these ingrained habits of mind, such as uh, depression, anxiety, fear of death, um, all, all kinds of uh, intractable conditions. And the, the promise is just just enormous. Uh, what you know, these these drugs can transform psychiatry if, if we let them. And in fact, uh, 
way back in the 50s and 60s. That's what they were doing until until they were banned. So I mean, my my personal journey was, was began with uh, with terror and trepidation, but I was uh, sufficiently reassured by the by the shaman of the uh, ayahuasca center where I found myself, um, and uh, and and the people around me who were just so supportive and warm and friendly. And so I decided to take a small dose of the uh, ayahuasca tea. And, uh, you know, I had a very, very, uh, very wonderful experience. It wasn't it wasn't transformative because it was a low dose of the drug, um, but it gave me the confidence to go on to to try uh, uh, psilocybin in the form of uh, magic truffles, which you can buy quite, quite freely in, in Amsterdam. And so, you know, I went on to have a. A relatively small dose of the psilocybin of the magic truffles and finally with the help of the Psych psychedelic society uh, in the UK um, I went on a psychedelic experience of weekend where I took a very high dose of, uh, of uh, psilocybin and uh, you know that was truly truly mind-blowing and uh, yeah it's kind of changed the way I the way I look at the world it was uh, it was an awe-inspiring and uh, terrifying, uh, transformative experience, and uh, I, I, I would recommend it to everybody. But of course, there is, uh, as I say, there's there's this uh, this small danger that people who are vulnerable to uh, psychosis, are triggering triggering mania. Um, so uh, so yeah, I know it was uh, it was a trip in in every sense of that word. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, and you know, you're you may know be familiar with uh you know compatriot rd lang you know this this beautiful mystical spiritual psychiatrist where you know he he says so beautifully you know the mystic swims in the same ocean where the psychotic drowns and so yeah. the these so-called psychotic states again what is psychosis it's it's something that's somewhat akin to the definition of a dream it's something that's defined yeah. in contradistinction to reality so even the very definition of psychosis is arbitrary. And so, but I do want to say, and, and I totally agree with you, because I, I I did my first um, acid trip, you know, I, I, maybe 30 years ago, and I, I haven't done a lot of this, but um, I had the same trepidation, the same fear, and until I actually surrendered to it, of course, you know, what constitutes, I think, a bad trip is, is not surrendering to it. But it, like you said, in a certain way, you fear of losing your mind. Well, I would say... Either on the on that path or the meditative path, you you have to lose your minds to find reality, and so there you have to have this this willingness. And this is where Bardo Yoga comes in to die to these false levels of identity and the perceptions that they fundamentally demand. And so, to me, I find it completely revelatory that when you're engaged in that, or, or you know, like in deep meditation retreats um, early on. I would I would have meditation sessions where I thought I'm going to lose my mind in this meditation session, and it was a very similar state to what I felt when I was taking my acid trip. And it's because, I mean, you know, my ego I was losing my ego boundaries, and and those boundaries are formidable. And you realize um, you don't. Well, actually, let me say it this way: you don't realize how contracted, constricted, and limited you are until those constraints are challenged by either agents like this or some of these other methods that you're talking about. And to me, that in itself, again, is, is highly revelatory because it shows just how deep and intractable these forces are and that 
to really grow up, we have to die to these false levels of identity. And, and these agents allow us to do that. Um, and so, so do you, again, without trying to get you in legal trouble in the UK, um, do you still um, work with this as part of your, your active um, psycho-spiritual growth? Well, I don't, and uh, I wish I could. Uh, in fact, I've uh, uh, tried to get my hands on a mushroom growing kit, but uh, unfortunately it was uh, confiscated at the border. So uh, oh. in order to keep out of trouble, I'm, I'm being from now on, I'm being very, very careful. Yeah. And uh, uh, if I'm in Amsterdam, I'll, uh, you know, I'll enjoy a, a little trip, but otherwise uh, uh, I'm being a, a good boy for now. Yeah. <laughs> but I wish it was otherwise. I do wish it was otherwise. And one day, I mean, you guys there in Colorado, I think you're very lucky you're ahead of the curve. Yeah, and eventually, as you know, that, you know, these agents were freely um, disseminated and legal for research. And, and now, as you write about in your book, they, they are um, slowly creeping their way back towards Schedule 2 status, which would make them, you know, further available. And, and to me, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous that that is the case. Talk to us a little bit, James. A, a lot of, of our readers and listeners are not familiar with this idea of microdosing. And I thought what you wrote about in your book around that was really compelling. How, you know, like we, you alluded to earlier, that with, uh, with doses of psilocybin and the like, studies have shown that it actually enhances um, meditative mindful states of mind. Can you speak a little bit about that? And again, I'm not trying to get all our listeners to start popping these agents, but I just want to to, uh, empower the viability of exploring these um, agents as a way to really open our minds. And so talk to us a little bit about, if you would, about microdosing and have you worked with that at all and how that seems to really be a, a tremendous benefit for some people? I haven't had that opportunity. Um, So really, uh, everything I know about microdosing is secondhand. Uh, But as I understand it, uh, people, uh, uh, they take take a very low um, uh, uh, sub uh, uh, hallucinatory uh, dose of, of the drug once every three days or so. And the idea is that that will boost their their creativity, their uh, their enthusiasm and energy um, for for those three days. Um, the the research so far is is quite limited and and mixed. Uh, some some observational studies do point to improvements in creativity on uh, day one, the day you take the microdose, but uh, they're a bit more uh, ambivalent about whether that. Uh, those improvements carry on on day two and three, as as many microdoses believe that they do. Um, but in in principle, I I, I think it's uh, it's a terrific a terrific idea that you know you don't have to go crazy in order to reap some of some of the benefits. And uh, and of course, uh, you know, famously, several several uh, high tech pioneers have have uh, have used psychedelics to. Uh, to leverage their own creativity, and uh, it is said that uh, that uh, Francis Crick, the uh, who who discovered the structure of uh, of DNA with uh, Jim Watson, uh, it's said that he was high on LSD when he he made that discovery. We we don't have any hard evidence for it, but uh, 
with luck, you know, in the next few years, we'll, the studies will come in. There's there's a new study organized and funded by the Beckley Foundation to, mm -hmm. to look into microdosing. And this is people who are already microdosing because of the, the, the legal constraints. It's very difficult for researchers to to hand out these drugs. You know, they, the uh, bureaucratic uh, hoops are just, you know, mind-bending it's really expensive to do these trials but they set up a very clever trial where where they use um people who are already microdosing and they're, they're it's self-blinding they they put a dose in in uh in two capsules a dose of placebo and a dose of uh psilocybin and they label those capsules and then they randomize them and so they're they're kind of you know conducting the experiment themselves and the, the researchers at imperial college don't have to sort of get their hands dirty with all the the legal bureaucratic problems of, of doing this kind of work. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. I, I, my fingers remain crossed on all that. And so, so James, as we start to wind down, on, oh my gosh, I, I could I could talk to you for six hours. So I feel like we're barely getting started. But I, I want to ask you, um, how did this book and your research, um, how did it inform your decision to? <clears throat> become a Buddhist because, <clears throat> excuse me, as I mentioned at the beginning, until you sent that in your bio, you don't reveal that in your book. And, and, and it was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. So how did this book in your research, um, did it have a decision, an impact on your decision, or were you kind of working in this direction prior to it? I'm, I'm, I'm always extremely interested with both scientists, research academics, um, how they're work actually informs and transforms their personal life. And um, so share with us a little bit about how your work has actually affected you along those lines. Yeah, sure. Um, in fact, I was already a Buddhist when I started writing this book. Uh, several years previously, um, a friend had given me a copy of uh, Gunaratana's uh, Mindfulness Made Simple, yes. uh, or Mindfulness in Plain English. And uh, Gunaratana, as, as you know, is a Sri Lankan monk who, who writes really beautifully. And uh, I read that book and it just seemed so true to me. I felt as though I'd been waiting all my life to to get these uh, revelations. And I couldn't believe that they were ancient revelations that, that had uh, come to light two and a half thousand years earlier. Uh, and I couldn't believe how relevant they still were. And they were relevant to uh, to me. And so that's that's how my path started with reading that book and be, starting to meditate, going on meditation retreats, and learning uh, learning a lot about Buddhism. So I was all, I was already on the path when I when I started uh, the uh, the second book, but um, I'm very fortunate in, in that my work kind of uh, it feeds into uh, my my belief system, and uh, so you know the more scientific research I look into it I mean thus far it, it seems to 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 confirm the the basic tenets of uh, Buddhism non-self and in impermanence and, and suffering so uh, yeah you know it's been a it's been a wonderful process and and uh, it's it's a, a path I'm on I'm, I'm not uh, uh, I can't claim to have attained any kind of uh, uh, spiritual um, enlightenment, shall we say? But uh, I'm very glad to be on the path, and I'm very glad that that, that book, uh, Gunaratana's book, set me on the path all those years ago. Yes, good for you. <laughs> really, 
it's, it's very similar to me. I mean, I, I had some experiences um, in my early 20s and uh, completely beyond my scope of understanding that that really kind of what we were talking about earlier, these experiences were initially kind of registered as somewhat opened, awakened to whatever extent that might have been, you know, in my early 20s. But then because I didn't have the doctrinal infrastructure to help me understand what was happening, you know, that so-called uh, awakened experience basically turned increasingly horrific as my um, kind of groundless transmission became um, panic-ridden, where I, what was originally just this breath of magnificent fresh air and an entirely new way of looking at the world, once again, like you were talking about, once the default mode network, which I had no idea, had I known that, it would have helped me 40 years ago. When that apparatus and that machinery came back online, then, of course, came the self-referential um, attempt to understand it from an egoic perspective. And from an egoic perspective, it was, you know, it's completely misunderstood, misunderstood and also deeply, deeply threatening. And so I started to panic. I, I freaked out. I contracted. I said, this is enlightenment. This is insanity. Hmm. And then I shut it down. And then I started, it's like, whoa, something happened there. What the heck was that? And so I spent 10 years trying to figure out, well, what the heck was that? And eventually, through somewhat systematic study, I started reading Buddhist texts and found myself just something like you, you know, nodding my head all the time saying, wow, maybe, maybe I'm a Buddhist. Um, and so it, it's so interesting to retrofit um, kind of doctrine to experience. Um, it happens both ways. We can use the doctrine to launch into experience, but sometimes we can have really, um, like even with near-death experiences, um, we can have these profound contacts with reality, but then if we don't have the uh, capacity to understand what happened to us, these things can become quite disconcerting. And so um, I'm always very, very curious how people like yourself find their way onto meditative paths. And as you know, many physicists have done this um, with their science. And a lot of uh, contemplative scientists, as they're calling themselves now, are using their, their studies in science to under, um, augment their personal journeys and so so tell us a little bit as we close out here james tell us about um, a couple things one is what are you um turning your incredibly beautiful mind towards now i mean what what's next for you uh, where do you see yourself in a couple of years um what, what's your current project oh well i'm i'm uh i'm still working on that uh, i'm not entirely sure what direction i'm going in but uh i do have uh the uh, the seed of an idea, which is possibly a book about uh, greed, about the neuroscience of greed, and how uh, how our biology is, you know, steadily uh, destroying the planet, you know, sort of the the locust the locust uh, biology that's that's built into us, you know, into our bodies and minds, which uh, you know we're we're the most uh, advanced, sophisticated uh, species on the planet. And you know we, we we've got this uh, you know fantastic power, but our, our biology is in the end it'll be be our undoing, and so uh, I would hope that we're very lucky uh, living in the times that we we do to have these all all these tools of altered consciousness and enlightenment at our, at our disposal in the West. You know the uh, the drugs, the meditation, the dreaming. Um, the scientific understanding so that we're fortunate to live when we do i think i, I pray uh, that uh, we're, we'll find a way out of this uh, dilemma that, that we're in which is uh, you know it's just mind-blowing the seriousness of our of our predicament 
Yeah, again, and if you're not aware of that, you are sound asleep. And so to me, again, it's a beautiful, so many beautiful ironies and almost paradoxes here. And one of them that came to mind is how we can actually use these altered states, these drugs and whatnot, actually as reality checks. I mean, these are the ones that can help jolt us back and break us out of this collective slumber. Um, and so I, I think that's the genius of your work is that using the, the, the methods, the science of, of the Western world, which is where, as you know, I mean, we, we are all um, unwitting um, kind of subjects in this cult of scientific materialism. And, and the, the people that we go to, we no longer go to the priests um, as much as we did. Now we go to the scientists. They are the arbiters of truth and reality. And so if we can find, and this to me, again, and I say this because it's a great way to end on a, on a cheerful note, because otherwise it's just so depressing, that, you know, co-mergent, when I do the 50,000-foot view um, on what's happening in the world today, um, in line with the kind of Taoist principles and Buddhist principles of what's called co-emergent, is a co-emergent with this incredible pathology. And again, we don't we don't have to harp and riff on that. It, you just have to open your eyes and see what's actually happening. Co-emergent with that are these extraordinarily powerful antidotes, the wisdom tools of the mindfulness revolution, the neuroscience, the, the tenets of neuroplasticity, all, all the things that you, you put together so elegantly in your book, they, they give me hope that, you know, especially through the lens of the vocabulary of science, um, we can now go to those very high priests and use the, those tenets as a way to keep us in check with reality. And, and the question is, can we do it in time? Um, I mean, that's, that's the, the interesting part for me. But I, I remain cautiously optimistic because I think the nature of reality altogether is indeed fundamentally good. Um, it's just the, all these adventitious defilements that have made it so dark. And so if we can be you know, roused by these alarm clocks that are ringing around and the antidotes that are being present to us, then in kind of this alchemical way, we can use this darkness to basically bring about revolutions and light. Um, and your work, I have to say, my friend, is, is going to be a, a powerful contributor to that because of, of the labor that you've put into it and the impassioned voice that you bring to it. Um, so I thank you so deeply about that. And and so um, how can people learn more about you? So this is the the uh, the sales, the unabashed sales part for you. Um, <laughs> learn learn more about your work. Um, when is your you know when is your book actually coming out? I've already had several members write to me say they pre-ordered your book, and I think uh, hopefully with our little conversation we'll have many more pre-orders and we'll get this on the New York Times bestseller for you. But I I think this book is going to be um, a seminal contribution because it's just so beautifully written, so rigorously researched. So how can people find out more about you? How can we better support your work? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, 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 thanks for those really kind words. Um, the, the book is out on the 1st of August. It's called Am I Dreaming? And uh, it's published by Atlantic Books. And you, you can find more of, more of my writing on uh, my blog, which is plasticbrain.com. Um, www.plasticbrain.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, James A. Kingsland, and uh, you can read my my first book, which is Siddhartha's Brain, which is all about all about the neuroscience of meditation and enlightenment. Beautiful, beautiful. And so, 
when the book is out and it's it's flashed across the bestseller list around the world, um, I'm going to ring you back up and we're going to have round two because uh, as much as we've covered, when um, people dive into this book, they'll realize we've just scratched the surface in what you offer here. So um, I will be back in touch with you and maybe we can make another round of this. But I have to say, James, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for the labor you put into this, you know, this little masterpiece. Um, well, thank you, Andrew. And it would be a, an absolute pleasure to uh, talk to you again sometime. Yeah, let's make it happen, my dear one. And so um, if I'm ever in your part of the world, I'll, I'll definitely um, ring you up. To now, do you live in London proper or where, where are you? Uh, we we live in, in uh, Shropshire now, which is a county near the border with Wales. So uh, we're no longer in the big uh, in the big smoky city. Nice. We're in a nice uh, country location. We've got ourselves a garden. So my my spiritual uh, well-being is flourishing out here in the country. <laughs> right, right. Thank you so much, James. Really, um, I so appreciate it. All the best with your release of this book and your future ventures. It's, it's certainly Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure talking to you. Take care. Bye.